mysterious stranger. I saw a plastic bag in the back seat. Was it little boy size? It was head size. This June. I know your name! What about the house? That scares me even to this day. An old friend is coming home. We are back. We are back yet again. And before we go uh, any further, I just want to say that um, this is where this is the section where things really start to heat up, and it's it's a good it's a good section. But we only really know I think we know two characters fairly well at this point. We know Ben. We get a good sense of Ben, and we get get a good sense of Susan. What do you what do you think of Ben and Susan? What do I think of Ben and Susan? Well, as we've, we've already discussed, there's this kind of mystical quality about their relationship, which, as you, I think, correctly pointed out, you kind of needed to do in order to be able to invest these characters with the kind of emotional connection that they need to drive certain aspects of the plot forward. Um, as I've said repeatedly before, Ben is clearly a damaged person. He has had this bizarre experience at the Marston house. And I think what it does is ultimately give him a little bit more openness to what's actually going on in the town as compared to a lot of other people, because he has this experience of, seeing something that isn't real, right? Seeing Hubie Marston's ghost, while at the same time knowing that the experience was in fact real, right? It it was something that actually happened. Not explainable, right? And he doesn't, good thing about this book is that he doesn't really try to explain that. And I, I like that. I think that's a fine way to go. So I think, you know, Ben is this really, interesting character in that regard um and susan i gotta say not a great character there's some interesting aspects to her but i think um my view of her as a character and we'll get into this as we get into the real plot a bit the big piece of her is uh, i think the kind of um, just kind of normal person reaction to things that I think you need um, and not anything particularly interesting, I'll say, about her. I think that the, you know, a big part of the story comes down to her and her relationship with her mother and her need to separate herself from her mother. I think that propels kind of Susan's character a lot, which is a, a nice thing to see somebody taking seriously this, you know, mother daughter dynamic. Although I think you could argue it's a little bit um, trite. Um, but her as a person, 
I think she falls a little bit flat. And again, this is a criticism by somebody who loves the book. Um, so, and I, so I think these things are a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm stating them, but I don't think that they're um, hugely problematic. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'd want to hang with Ben too often uh, when he's, when he's getting morbid, but he, he's, after he's had a few drinks, <laughs> he is, a, he, he is likable. He's, he's kind of open and honest. And I, I actually like kind of agree with your assessment of Susan as a character. Uh, well, her, her part in the novel, I should say as a character, I like her as well. She's open. She's pleasant. She's honest. All she true, doesn't yes. hide her feelings. I think they're both, um, I like them both. I actually like Susan a little more. I think I could hang with, uh, she wouldn't be as tough a hang as Ben might be on occasion, but I think they're yeah. both, they're both likable. I think you can invest in them and you, you worry. Ultimately you, you do worry about them. In an interesting way, I mean, and and I agree with you, by the way, I think that if if you met these people in real life, Susan is the one that's going to be a whole lot more um, attractive and and, you know, I'll say beneficial to hang around with because you're right. She's a nice person. She's interesting. Right. She's engaging. She's all of those things, whereas he can be all of those things, but he's also a little bit creepy (laughs) and a little bit kind of you know weird <laughs> yeah i mean you always get the impression that like certain nights at 3 3 a.m ben mears is having a dark night of the soul <laughs> all right let's let's move on that was that was just an aside we got uh ralphie's missing for about three days danny's sick he's at home but he's sick and you know the locals are get volunteers out into the woods and the fields to to um, search for Ralphie. Ben is one of those. Um, next thing you know, it's like September 22nd. And this is, this is where things really pick up because you have Straker call Crockett, Larry Crockett, the, the local, the local big deal, the real estate magnet. Um, he has almost forgotten about the uneasy meeting with Straker and the deal that has made him feel uneasy. Uh, but then Straker calls and Straker's now in town and Straker wants Crockett to hire a couple of guys to go to the docks at 7, 8, 7 p.m. to pick up a couple antiques and he wants them taken to the shop except for the large one which is a very, very valuable Heppelwhite sideboard, by the way. He wants that taken to the Marston house where, where, um, where Straker is living. And so, so we have that going on. And, of course, it is, I believe it's, um, who is he hire? A guy named Ro- Royal Snow and, Ro- and Floyd, right? Uh, no, Royal Snow and... Um, um, or uh, Hank Peters. Hank, oh, good old Hank Peters. I so like they, Hank Peters. They drive to the docks, and here, if you're not a well, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't want to be sound mean, but if you know, if you've been exposed to any kind of vampire lore or seen any movie or read Dracula, they show up at the docks. They load the stuff up. There's something. There's no uh, customs stamp on at least one of the boxes, which is making 
Hank or Royal very nervous. They don't like this whole whole setup. They don't like this deal, and they take the they take the um they drop off the boxes at the shop, and then they have to head up to the Marston house with this last with this last box. They have to put it in the basement, and then they have to secure all the entryways. With Striker, Striker wanted Yale locks specifically. He wanted Yale locks, not those he, Harvard locks. No, he, Yale locks. He, he told, um, "What is it with uh, Larry Crack?" He's like, I, "I want you to procure five Yale locks." <laughs> You're familiar with the brand, you know? Come on, <laughs> jeez, come on, Striker. But um, I think that's a good little section because there's a lot going on here. That's a good little mm-hmm. section because you get the whole creepiness factor of the you get the creepiness factor at the Marston house. These guys are grown men. As far as they know, no one's there. They have to go into the basement with this box and they just don't like it. And of course, one of them forgets to leave the keys to the locks uh, uh, in the basement as as instructed by Straker, and he has to go back in, and it's it's very creepy. They don't l- like this, I, and I may be getting the movie confused with the book, but is there? There's really nothing in the movie. The box seems to be moving on its own in the back of the van, like it's kind of creeping forward a little bit. I don't think anything happens, other than there. He sees a couple of rats in the basement and he's just very, very extremely nervous and doesn't like it at all. Whereas Royal Snow does see whoever brings it. It must be Royal, right? Because he sees what may be kids clothes in the basements. Um, or is no, it Hank? No, it's, it's Hank. Hank. It's, it's Hank. Hank. Yeah. Sees kids clothes comes out. And let, let, can we pause there for a moment? Because I, I want to talk about this chapter. It's actually one of the longer subchapters in the book, Hank and, and Royal's expedition to get the, get the box and, boxes and, del, and deliver them. And it's the first section in the book that scared the, the bejesus out of me. and gave yeah. me the heebie-jeebies um, when, I, when I read it or when I heard it when I was reading it with my brother. Um, and nothing happens. If you go back and reread the chapter, no, there's no the boxes and move, nothing like that. I mean, nothing happens. Nothing supernatural happens. It's just the natural creepiness of the situation. Yeah, I mean, arguably something supernatural happens because when they see the house, they both get freaked out. And there's a really nice pat- passage um, where Hank Peter Hank Peters is a Vietnam, and again, one of these things that I think King does very well, bringing things back to our you know. Um, our daily experience, of course, this is 75. Peters is a Vietnam vet, lots of Vietnam vets, of course, by that point back um, in the United States. And he talks about being scared in a different way than being scared in Vietnam. Right. And because in Vietnam, it made sense. It made sense. Right. Um, And he notes that, right. And he goes through all the things you can be scared of in Vietnam and then notes that here, this was just a house, right? It's just boards and hinges and nails and sills. And there's no reason, right, for it. Um, um, And then in in the passage ends with this really, um, really um, nice phrase. There's no reason, really no reason to feel that each splintered crack was exhaling its own chalky aroma of evil. That was just plain stupid thinking. Ghosts, 
he hadn't believed in ghosts or he didn't believe in ghosts, not after Nam. And it's this nice, again, connection back to, right, this really, you know, tragic experience that everybody went through in the United States with Vietnam in some form or other, right? right. And kind of bringing us back to a reality, right? I had that experience. All my, you know, fantastical beliefs and all that got knocked away by the cold, hard reality of dealing with that. But now I'm feeling that again, right? That, that crazy sense of unrational fear. Again, just, I think, really great writing. Um, and I think done very effectively. Yeah, it's a very tense. It's a very tense scene. It's very reminiscent of, Dracula arriving, you know, the, the arrival. And it is Barlow. Right. I know. Yeah. I went on Reddit and a couple other and, and there's all this there's all this back and forth, but um, Is it actually it, just a headboard? It's it's just a it's just a very valuable hepper white. It's <laughs> it's Barlow coming to town. It 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 this has to be. Um but also, you know, meanwhile, Ben is having his second meal. With the very friendly Ann Norton and right. Mr. Norton, and and uh, this isn't this isn't uh, this isn't well the the meal itself isn't important except to say that Anne's kind of continuing to be a pain in the ass. The father, uh, I forget, um, I forget the dad's name. Mr. Norton um, is becoming increasingly warmer towards Ben, and this is where they have the classic. Um, you know, they mentioned Ralphie's still missing. Ben thinks he's Ben finally says, he, you know, he, he pretty much thinks Ralphie's dead. And so they have that conversation. And this is where they have the classic. My favorite part of the book is um, Ben and Mr. Norton talk about the Red Sox fading pennant chances on September 25th. Now, let me just say, OK. Mr. Norton's a New Englander, born and bred in Maine. It's September 25th, 1975. At the start of September, the Red Sox were four and a half games up on Baltimore. By mid-September, they were three and a half games up on Baltimore. Now, that may be fading for some people, but here's what they don't tell you. Is that in these seven games that Boston played before this conversation... They took five of them. And the day after this conversation, Boston clinched at least a tie for the American League East Division. And then the 27th, they clinched the division. So you have these two guys talking about Boston's fading pennant chances when Boston has been pretty much, you know, in the lead for quite a long time and really showed no signs of slowing down. Now, what I like to think happened was... Ben doesn't know shit about sports. <laughs> and Ben said something about, oh, yeah, he must be a... Yeah, Boston, uh, too bad about the pennant chances. And just to be polite, Mr. Norton went along with it. But after Ben left, he's, he's like, I, this guy doesn't know shit about... Ba what the hell was he talking about? <laughs> this is but, our year. <laughs> but it's important because it's one of my favorite parts because Ben and Susan leave. They're going to go get an ice cream soda like you do. In um, small towns, but instead they go to the park and have sex. Yes. Afterwards, afterwards, you, this is the stuff I like, right? He says, Hey, you know what? 
I'm trying to he basically, well, he doesn't tell this to Susan, but you know, for the people who haven't read it or may read it, Ben wants to tap into the atmosphere of the Morrison house to basically write a bestseller. And he's very upfront about that. I think when he talks to Matt later on this same night, he, that's what he, that what, that's what his plan is to get back on the radar as an author, maybe use the Martin Marston house is its atmosphere and, and, and write something. I think he wants to write about a serial killer. But so he does research, and this is where we find out that <clears throat> Hubie Marston retired to Salem's Lot in 1927 as a retired trucking trucking company executive. But he was really <laughs> a, he was really a hitman for the Boston mob, right? And in 1927 or 26, I'm not exactly sure. Um, he was pulled in by the Boston police for a murder, which his bosses were able to get 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 him off the hook on that. But the Malden police pulled him in because of a, the disappearance of a young boy. And that made the Boston mob nervous. Right. So Hubie, with his pension, retired to Salem's Lot, built this big house, one of the nicest, nicest house in the nicest house in the lot. And then, of course, we all know that in 39, that's when he killed his wife and himself. I think that is this where he also talks about. Uh, I think it's Birdie Marston is the wife, right? I think I think so. Is this when he when he tracks down Birdie's yes. sister in the mm-hmm. old age home in New Hampshire, and she says uh, he found out that he was really a contract killer, and Ben asks her how many, and she just holds up both hands and wiggles her wiggles her fingers back and forth like he's killed twenty, thirty, forty, fifty guys. I don't know, but I don't remember that. That yeah. may have been a movie thing. No, no, it's in the, no, book. In the book. It's not. Okay. It's not in the movie. And she's pretty much gone, except she doesn't doesn't forget a thing that happened before, like 1945. But afterwards, she's she's pretty far gone. And she relates the story that um, she had taken a job as a housekeeper for a wealthy family on Cape Cod that summer. She was making a salad in the kitchen, and when she looked down, the bowl was full of blood. She fainted. When she got up, everything was back to normal. But that was supposedly about the same time, literally the same day and the same time that her sister was being killed. And then she tells Ben, uh, I like this part, she's been cursed with the knowledge of two truly evil men in her lifetime. (laughs) One was Adolf Hitler. Right. And the other was her brother-in-law, Hubie Marston. And I'm like, yeah, you know, there was Stalin, too. <laughs> Mussolini. I mean, you know, but okay, Hubie, that's how bad Hubie is. His own sister-in-law <laughs> puts him on a par with, um, with you know, Hitler. A- a- Adolf Hitler. He's, but after all this happens, Susan tells him something really... So they have sex. They walk he talks about what he found out. And she says something. This is how you know Susan's pretty smart. And Ben maybe maybe needs a little more discretion. She says, basically, I wouldn't tell anybody about what you're writing about. <laughs> tell him, tell him you're, I forget what she says. Just tell him you're writing a history of the town or something. Because she's thinking to herself, this is all pretty fucked up, Ben. You don't, you do not want to be talking about the topic of your book, which is to anyone. But he's very he's very hyped up when he goes home, so he can't sleep. This is when he goes out to Dell's 
And this is when he meets Matt Burke. Let's pause, though, before we get to Matt Burke. Um, Let's pause. I want to go back in time because there are a couple of things that um, that you skipped over that uh, we just need to note took place. So um, Ben and uh, Ben went to the Nortons on the 25th um, for for, um, for dinner and the um, the guys all went did their the guys Hank Hank and, and Royal went and picked up um, Barlow as it turns out um, a couple of days earlier I, th- I think it's the 22nd I'm Fairly certain that's the date. But yes, I, I, I think you're right. Today. You're right. So a couple of other things happened. So they do that, right? And, and Hank sees the, the children's clothes. And one of the things he does is he goes to Larry Crockett. <laughs> yeah. And he says, I really don't feel good about this. Something really weird happened. I'm not happy. And he tells him about the clothes. And here's how we know that Crockett is truly a slimy person um, instead of doing anything that would be construed as the right thing he instead bribes um, essentially bribes Hank um, uh, into yeah. keeping his mouth shut, shut yeah we we have confirmation that Crockett is an oily scumbag he is an oily scumbag and uh, Hank is uh, you know this stays with Hank and he is disturbed by this because at heart Hank is a, a decent fellow um, at the bottom of it all. Yeah. Um, but uh, he wakes up screaming in the middle of the night. Um, but another thing that happens is that Parkins Gillespie yes. stops by to check in on Ben because and, and Straker and Straker. Yeah. Both. Good scenes. So, yes. Good scenes. He checks in because of course they're the new guys in town. He's got missing kids, right. And or one missing kid and, um, one who's uh, not doing well checks in with them um, to see kind of who they are and, and um, prods them a little bit. Um, not much really comes out of those conversations. Um, you know, they, they kind of go as you would expect them to go a little bit of parrying back and forth. One of the things that he does do is reaches out to the FBI Yes. to see whether he might be able to find out some some more information. And on the 24th, um, um, Danny Glick, well, excuse me, on the 23rd, I think Danny Glick gets admitted to the hospital or maybe earlier. Yes, he collapses in the hallway at home. So he's been home this whole time. Been Right. And uh, he's in the hospital, possible diagnosis of being pernicious anemia. Hmm. Um, and then dies on the 24th. So he, the night before. He, he does die. The, the night before, or excuse me, at one o'clock in the morning on the 24th, he dies. Um, and um, this is, and, and Ben, I think, finds out about this at dinner with the Nortons. Yes, um, that night. So lots of stuff happens here. We get Barlow showing up to town. We have Glick dying. The uh, excuse me, Danny Glick dying. We've got Parkins Gillespie starting an investigation into the the new guys in town. We clearly have um, Ben and Susan's relationship solidifying. Um, I'll use a polite term. Um, 
and uh, Ben's kind of um, obsession with the Marston house and slight craziness being demonstrated and Susan trying to help him <laughs> avoid possible negative consequences of people finding out about his slight craziness. And we also have Ben um, really not understanding pennant races. And Ben's lack of appreciation <laughs> for the right, the fine art of baseball. I want, and I want to go back. We do learn uh, when the FBI calls back, we do learn a little bit about straight. We learn a little bit about Ben that his politics are left a bit to the left because he speaks at some anti-war sure. rallies in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And we also learn that Straker and Barlow have worked in the antiques business together in Hamburg, Germany, and also London, and that they fled, or at least Barlow fled Germany in 1938, uh, and the FBI agent suggests just ahead of the Gestapo. And we learn that uh, Straker was born in Manchester, England, the son of a cabinet maker who was apparently very good cabinet maker because he left his son some a decent chunk of change. And that Straker was born, I think I got, oh, like 19, what did I have? Oh, I forget. But Straker was born, Straker's in his like mid to late 50s, I believe. And he's been in the, the antiques business with, um, with Barlow for a while now. And so we do learn a little bit that, but Barlow himself is like, King's, King's doing a Jaws thing, right? We're we're a decent way into the novel, and um, you know the shark hasn't really put in an appearance yet that we've seen, right? Which is great. Yes, which is wonderful. I think it's great because you know in some modern vampire novels, you know it would start out with that. Yep. And this we're like, who's this Barlow? Where is he? That he keeps the uh, Straker keeps saying, oh, he's on a buying trip in New York. He'll be here in October. And we're like, you know, who is he? What is he? Where is he? And what's going on here? And and if he's not in town, what's going on with the, you know, one 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 kid's gone missing, one kid is his brother is now dead. And if you really haven't pieced it together yet, I, I don't know. I don't want to be cruel, but you're probably not really paying close attention if you don't know this is a vampire story. I I I agree. Uh, I mean, there's other there's other sections where it's like if you don't know by now. You're an idiot, right? This, you really should be, you really should be looking at this as a, as a vampire story. But um, we are running up on, uh, I think, a break, and then I think we'll come back for about another twenty minutes, and then I, uh, I think we'll call it quits for today, if that's okay with you, Dale. That works for me. All right. Because that'll I'll... take. When... Yeah. Okay. That works. All right. I'll talk to you in like. Three minutes, three, four minutes. Sounds good. All right. All right. So let's talk about what happens at Dell's. I think, um, you know, nothing earth shattering happens there, but some important things do happen. Ben goes out there. Um, he sees Weasel Craig, who resides with Ben at the boarding, boarding house, even Miller's boarding house. Uh, Weasel is a local character he's kind of like the t- <laughs> he's he's a chronic alcoholic he's a good guy though he's actually a good guy but he's a chronic <laughs> alcoholic and uh we do know i think it's funny that he he won a 
bronze or silver star at Anzio. And uh, I think, you know, the, the bottle just kind of got him a little more year after year after year. Um, he's a real character. But Ben meets um, another member of the vampire hunting team eventually. He meets Matt Burke. And Matt is the 62-year-old. I think he says he's uh, three years away from retirement. He's 62-year-old English teacher at the high school. He's a bachelor. He lives out on, I think you get the impression, he lives out on a, some country road with no neighbors too close. And he likes to go to Dell's because he's starting to lose his hearing a bit. And he likes, he likes music and he likes it loud. And he's just enjoying a glass of beer. And Weasel sees Ben and invites him over. And Ben meets Matt Burke. I like Matt. Me too. I like Matt a lot. He... He, he's and I tried to piece this together a, a little bit. You know, Matt. You know, Matt's well read. He's read Ben's first book. He compliments it. I think he's read at least one other and tells tells um, tells Ben he thinks you know it'll gain ground in time with the critics because you get the impression that it was maybe a, a little bit panned by the critics. And, you know, he, he asks the logical question, what's a writer doing in Salem's Lot? He learns that Ben lived there for a couple of years. And then he, he asks the question that every, you know, here's the thing. He asks the question every writer wants to hear, except Ben Mears. You know, Ben is, what's your book about? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Every fucking writer yeah. wants to talk about <laughs> endlessly <laughs> what they're writing. I call bullshit. But, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. So Matt, uh, you know, Matt was born in 1912. He's 63 years old. One point you learn that he's been teaching for 30 plus years. But in another, he tells Ben, um, if I didn't like teaching, it'd be a broken axle for the last 40 years. So I'm thinking, you know, trying to piece them together. I'm thinking he's, he's getting out of college in 36. Maybe he goes to grad school. He's not from the lots. Is that right? No, he, because he says he wasn't in the lots at the time of the Hubie Marston scandal. He came afterwards and nowhere is it ever said that he's from the lot. So you get the idea that not only is he uh, 63 years old, he's, you know, this bachelor. He's not a native. He's clearly educated, not just because he's a teacher, but he seems remarkably well-read, erudite. And even though he's been there a while, he, I, King never says it, but he's maybe a, still a bit of an outsider. I think that's I think that's right. I and and he taught um, um, Ben's aunt in her senior yes. in in your senior in her senior year, which was his phrase, my first year in Salem's Lot. So he's yeah. he's definitely not a native. Right. Exactly. So that's interesting. He seems like li well liked. Um, uh, accepted, but he's he's definitely not a native. But he does, you know, they he he does he does mention the quote ancient scandal mm -hmm. end quote involving the house and and Ben looks you know you're writing about the Marston house and 
<laughs> Ben's suspicious. How do you know? And he says, you know, it's it's basically small town gossip. The librarian told Matt what had mentioned what what Ben had been in the in the library researching, and uh, that kind of sets Ben back on his heels a little bit because up to that point. Bennett thought he had been really discreet, <laughs> except pretty much everyone knows what he's writing about. <laughs> yep. It's it's about this um, ancient scandal. He does say something I like in the kind of the folklore element of it all is that um, they'll talk, you know, people will talk about the Marston house and what happened there, but only kind of the old timers who were there at the time will will get into certain specifics and only amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. And he says a type of taboo comes into play. Yep, where, where outsiders aren't 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 allowed in. And um, then he uh, invites them to come come speak at his class the following Tuesday. They have a real writer in the classroom to talk to his. Sounds like a AP English course or maybe creative writing course. I forget which. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Creative and, writing, I think. Yeah. yeah. And Ben accepts and um, uh, and then he's got to get he's got to get Weasel back to the boarding house. And Weasel's barely able to stand. So that's right. what happens. Anything uh, else you want to mention? Yeah. Just just um, just following up a little bit on their conversation about the, the Marston house. There's and and also about um, Matt as a general matter. In in one sense, I think Matt is a stand-in for Stephen King himself. I mean, I think that you know, obviously, the writer Ben Mears, right? There's you know, obviously, ah, that's you know, Stephen King's perspective. But I think there's actually a little bit more. There's a little bit of perspective from Matt as well because King is um, um, was a teacher, right? He did while he was writing his novels. Yeah, for a year or two, I think he says. Yeah, and he's also, unlike Ben, someone who is tethered to the town that he lives in. Right? Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he is. He, yes. Right? He's he's definitely knows those things, and he he understands the the nature of those towns. And I think one of the one of the um, um, roles that Matt plays is also, in a sense is not quite the right word, but kind of the guardian, as it were, for all that the town is, right? He, unlike Susan, who is really emotionally involved with Ben, and that's where her, her relationship with her mother and her relationship with Ben is really what drives Susan. Yes. For Ben, it's his relationship with the Marston house and kind of the things that happen and the evil that lurks there. Um, Mark is in a sense, a victim, but not really representative of anything, I think, other than himself to, at, a, at a certain level. But Matt is the one who understands the town. He's taught the people there. He knows the people there. He's not necessarily, because you said, not, not complete insider, but he kind of knows it and, and feels it all. And I think he's a, he's, a, um, he's a good representation of all of those things or, or a guardian of all of those things. Um, as well as being the rational voice to Ben's somewhat ir- irrational voices as they start to uncover a little bit more of what's going on. Uh, I'll also note um, kind of a, um, an interesting um, 
bit of their conversation about the Marston House, where at one point, you may recall, they talk about it's kind of like an idol sitting up on the hill watching over the town. Good line. Um, yeah, kind of the, the good and the bad. And, um, well, you know, or the bad, right? And and Matt says, you know, it, it's it's looked down at us over 50 years, all of our little picadillos and sins and lies. And Ben says, well, maybe it's seen the good, too. Yeah, yeah. And um, Matt makes this really good comment, well, interesting comment, where he said, there's little good in the sedentary small towns. Yes. Mostly indifference spiced with an occasional vapid evil or worse, conscious one. Which, which, um, you know, King is a product of small towns for the most part. Uh, small towns in New England. I think he's never really lived anywhere else in his adult life, except I think they lived in, as a grown man, I think they were in Colorado for a couple of years and things like that. But um, I think he lived in Maine as a small kid in a small town and in Connecticut for a little while and back to Maine. And he writes about small towns. And I, I'm not sure if he likes small towns, hates small <laughs> towns, or a little bit of both because he does, he does seem to have some type of affection for small towns, but that that's a brutal line, which is probably demonstrably false. Yeah. But it's a real brutal line. And like King's been writing about small towns for, I don't know, 60 years or however long. And it makes you wonder, like, does this guy, does he like small towns or is it kind of like the small town to him is like the crazy uncle you have to deal with? And you really, really know well, but you, you may not want to, you may not like him all that much. I, I don't know how he feels about small towns. It's interesting because in one sense, you could say, you know, maybe like it's the wrong word, right? Is that there's a recognition that he's a product of, and this is what he knows, right? Oh, sure, sure. Right. I mean, that that's clearly the case because of his background. And, and he's always kind of, you know, as you said, he's, he's kind of lived in those towns his whole life. And I think he's lived in the town in Maine that he lives now for, you know, last 50 years or something like that. Um, and so there's a, there, there's a degree to which you might kind of say, it's not a matter of like, it's a matter of what he knows. Um, and it's a matter then of not so much, a, you know, personally, whether he likes them or not, more a matter of, you know, putting on a realist's, you know, lens and taking a look what's actually there. Um, and I think that maybe with this character, there's a little bit of, uh, um, well, uh, so Norm MacDonald, um, I heard him talking about doing impressions of people. And, and he said, he can't do impressions of anybody he doesn't like. He said, and he, he said, I don't think it's possible to do that, that, that you can't really do it well unless you have some sort of an affinity for, for, the, for the place. And I think that that may be going on here a little bit, where Matt's, you know, hard scrabble cynicism about small towns is not necessarily King's view, but because he knows it so well, and he does have affection for it, goods and ill as well, that he's able to create, such a compelling character as Matt is that has that kind of perspective. Um, so I think, I suspect, of course, have no inside <coughs> knowledge at all that King probably likes the small towns, but he's 
fully conscious and aware, and this clearly comes across in all of his other books about small, you know, that deal with those small towns, that there, that there is good and bad in all of them. Because clearly, in this book, there's good. And there's good in the people in the towns, right? Eva Miller, Weasel Craig, these are good people. And even some of the other people, right? They're solid people. They're good people. And sure. so the cynicism that's reflected there is clearly false, right? Is it? Is it? Uh, I want to move on, but is it cynicism for from Burke or is it? Is it just the, what he sees as reality? Because he doesn't come across as a very cynical character. I think it's probably, you're right, it's probably more reality. I like Matt. Matt's uh, 63 years old, which was a lot older in 1975 than it is now. Yep. But he listens, he likes rock and roll music. He'll go out to yeah. the bar. He says when Ben when Ben shows up at the school, he mentions like he's tried marijuana once or twice, but I think he says it gives him indigestion. He's just kind of like a, he's not a crusty, bitter old guy. He's right. he's you imagine he's kind of fun at fun at parties and um, a little bit more hip than you would expect, uh, typically in a 60, 63 year old English teacher. And he's got a really good sense of self-awareness in a couple of areas. Yep. Um, so he's a very likable character. And this is this is only really important because this meeting leads Ben to and, you know, you know, if you want to hop in and mention anything else, go ahead. But this meeting leads Ben to speak in his class, which yep. leads Ben to be invited over to Matt's for dinner. Yep. And once again, we get another <laughs> Ben's Ben's obsession with the Marston house and some conversations. And Ben, for whatever reason, which I think is a bit of a stretch, but you know, whatever. Ben. You know, pretty much, I think he says, he either comes out and says it directly or indirectly that he believes the disappearance of, the bad things that have been going on, the disappearance of Ralphie uh, has, I don't think Danny's died yet, right? No, he has. He has. Has something to do with the Marston house. And this is like, he's right, as a matter of fact. But sitting there listening to it, it's like, yeah, it's almost like listening to a conspiracy theorist. Right. You know, there's um, maybe some asshole took Ralphie because there's, there's evil, crazy people in the world. And maybe uh, Danny got sick with, you know, and died. But all of a sudden it has something to do with the Marston house with no evidence, by the way, right? No evidence. He's basically accusing the, the, at least the one person who lives up there of, of having something to do with the death of two children. <laughs> and he's got no evidence. Nonetheless, they decide that on Friday, it's Tuesday. Now on Friday, they're going to go up <laughs> Friday night and meet the new, meet the new owners. That's the plan. And it doesn't sound like a particularly good plan if you think that <laughs> that people up there may be responsible for the disappearance of one child and the and the death of another. But that's the plan. And yeah. then, but then it, but but there's a there's a there's a reason there is a reason for it, right? Because uh, you know it, it is it it is I grant you completely cockamamie notion. 
right? Based on no evidence whatsoever, ever, right? It's, it's, it's been it's kind of obsession getting the better of him. But um, Matt has a little bit of inside information about Danny's death. Yes, he does. Right, because his doctor, um, the one character we have not yet met who plays a very significant role, um, Dr. Cody, James Cody, MD, has given him a little bit of more information about Danny. Um, and in uh, these days, it would be violation of a variety of, of privacy laws. information. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was then, too. I don't know. But in any event, um, uh, it tells him about the, you know, pernicious anemia, <laughs> the white uh, count, <laughs> the white count. Right. Um, and all these things. And so. So, you know, Matt is a little bit, you know, kind of, you know, he, he's a little, everybody's a little bit nervous about the Marston house, somebody moving in there who's a little bit unknown. Right. And these weird things going on. So his, uh, you know, I I agree, you know, Ben is kooky, has this idea. I always thought it was the next step that was a little bit of a stretch is that they agreed to form this committee to go and, and do this stuff. Is that, I mean, even if you're, I mean, would you really do that? That's kind of, it's kind of a, a, a pretty significant step to take. I wouldn't do it. If somebody told me two really nice people moved into a brand new house, I still wouldn't form a, a welcoming committee and drive up there and introduce myself, but that's just me. They're going to yeah. do it with, so, uh, there's two things. Yeah. Before we go, um, there's, uh, and I was a little bit unfair, not completely unfair. It was a little bit unfair. Ben's research shows that while Hubie lived in the house, there was four disappearances and none of them had ever been, none of those disappearances were e- ever resolved. He says no hunter found a skeleton one, you know, out hunting yeah. one October. Yeah. Um, no, no, uh, you know, no construction equipment ever unearthed, uh, ever unearthed a skeleton. It was gone. Right. Four, four, four kids, four, four kids uh, in the, the space of 10, 11, 12 years. After that, between the time Hubie died and the story takes place, only three had disappeared from the lot. One had been found alive and well and living in Boston or someplace working. Like a, he ran away, got out and just decided to stay. And I think the one of the others had been uncovered by mistake where they fell into a grab. It was like yeah. an accidental yeah. death. And he just points that out that, you know, now it's occupied again. And in the space of, you know, a couple of weeks, there's two missing kids. Well, he one also, dead and one missing. Yeah. And the other thing is um, you do get. I think I think it's. Is it is it at this point where matt says he heard a lot of the women went down to the shop because it opened and you get you get a description of straker in action being very kind of urbane and charming and or is that when susan's talking to matt i think that's later that's when susan's talking to matt but but before we go we we have skipped ahead a little bit in our in our plot what did we forget we forgot um the most important thing the um uh the cemetery danny glick's funeral um that is 
coming up? Mm, no, it's it's it it's prior to um, it's prior to their dinner, or, or yeah, it's prior to or the I believe same night maybe as their dinner. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's a dare. No, no, no. It's it's two days before because it's that Sunday. Okay, it's two days before. Danny right. Danny is is buried, and that's when we. That's if I'm. Am I mistaken or not? Is that the first time we're introduced to Father Callahan? I think it is the first time we're introduced to Father Callahan. So we know the Glicks are Catholic. Mm-hmm. We know Catholics don't do funerals on Sunday, but Stephen King's not a Catholic, so we'll we'll forgive him. And um, I did like this scene, not just because the burial of a young a young person is is just an awful thing. Um, also made it seem like the the church services were private, but then just it looked like townspeople almost from a a, a gossipy uh, spectator sport, all the old people piling into cars to go up to the funeral, and you know it wasn't because they were tight with the Glicks. It's a may, maybe some went at a at a, at a sincere. I'll show up. I'll pay my respects. It was a neighbor or it was a town, you know, but you also get this kind of like it, it was something for the, some of the real older people to do and talk about. Yes. Which it, is a nastier side of small town life. I think at least in Salem's lot. I think he overdid it with that. He, he had stuff in there that he, I think he didn't necessarily need, um, including some colloquialisms, Yes. kind of in the mouths of some of the of Danny of, of Glick's father particularly yes, I don't in his know. grief. I can't remember what the phrase, but it, it just kind of it it kind of rings odd. Um yes. but um I, and I don't think that you need it, right? I mean I, I think you you didn't have to go there. I don't think that it necessarily added all that much um to the story. And I'm not sure you need um, the dad yelling at the coffin, get out, stop fooling your mother, you're scaring her. Yeah. Get out of the I, I'm not, I mean, it's effective. It, it certainly shows the man's utter anguish. Sure. But I'm not quite sure you needed it because does he, does he jump down onto the coffin as well? I think he does. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to, yeah. friends and family have yeah, to kind of like on. escort him out. And, mm-hmm. but Callahan, you know, Callahan's a cool guy. He's um he's waiting, and is it Ryerson that asks you know how long it be? And he's like, not long. I'm not I'm not gonna yeah. do a huge song and dance. These people yeah. have enough grief in the days ahead. They don't have to be up here all that long. So you get yep. the you get uh I, you get a good vibe from Callahan. I think. I think you get yeah. I think you get a I think you get a solid vibe from yeah. him. I, I think you know he's 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 he's. He's a understands Roman, his job. He's a Roman Catholic priest, but he's very pragmatic. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. this, oh, I got to do this. I got to say that. I got to read from two gospels and do it, you know, and all that. He's very pragmatic. Like, yeah, I'm going to make this a quick one. And that's when Ryerson walks away because. Yeah, he's not going to stand around during the funeral. It's a family thing. So he's going to go. Well, sit it's even and... better. To sh- even better to show you Ryerson's thoughtfulness is 
the family doesn't really need to see the guy who dug the hole exactly. and will cover him up. Yeah, yeah. So he's gonna he's gonna go and 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 here's an interesting little thing that happens. I love the tombstone. He walks by. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and there's there's a little bit. This is I I I kind of read this. I said this is kind of a strange thing. So he he's feeling a little bit kind of you know hey, this is not cool and and he he goes and and he he kind of um he gets a, a small chill run through him when he sees Juby Marston's grave which has the inscription the angel of death who holdeth the bronze lamp beyond the golden door has taken thee into dark waters yeah right and then below that yes. it, it reads god grant he lies still i think it's, <laughs> i think it's great I, I love that portion. It's just King, like King kind of blows it though, because then his next line is still vaguely troubled and still not knowing why. <laughs> Mike Ryers, <laughs> sorry, but if you're next cemetery and you see on the grave, gee, I hope this guy yeah. doesn't rise from the dead. <laughs> I think that's why you're a little bit crazy. I think you're a little bit nervous. And you know, like <laughs> you know, when Hubie died, the townspeople took up a collection to get him a stone because you know they engrave that. <laughs> Let's make sure this whack job doesn't ever come back. Yeah, that's great. Still vaguely troubled after like possibly <laughs> the darkest inscription on a tombstone ever. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. I mean, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting scene. It's just it's one I like to hurry by. It's yeah. I, no one wants to really read much about it. You know, a twelve-year-old, twelve-year-old's funeral. I, yeah, it's 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 grim stuff. But when we come back next time, we'll talk about what happens afterwards. We're back, Salem's Lot. Now we're getting to the, we're going to be getting to the good stuff coming up real quickly. I wanted to go back though, and and just touch on two things. One was I had said that. Uh, Matt Burke, the, our local English teacher, was not from the lot. And I stand by that 100%. But I did see uh, when, uh, ben, uh, when Ben goes to Dell's and meets Matt, he's introduced to Matt by, by local chronic alcoholic Weasel Craig. And I did notice a line when I went back to read it. where um, Matt, So Matt's clearly not from the lot. Matt even says... Yeah, when I taught your aunt in her senior year, that was my first year in the lot. Right. So we got it from Matt Burke. I think he should know. But Weasel says, Matt and I grew up together, only he got an education and I got the shaft. So either Weasel and uh, Matt are maybe from a, a neighboring town or Weasel's just like drunk off his ass and doesn't know what he's talking about. Or he could be speaking metaphorically. Or he could be speaking metaphorically, like like he's prone to do. The other, <laughs> the other thing I want to discuss, and I can't believe I, I forgot this because it's part of can, one of my. Be, before yeah. you move on, can I interrupt and just just make a make a note? Kind of something that's interesting um, about the story, uh, and I don't want to. Well, we're we're full of spoilers on this. I think uh, so. Um, if you're not interested in spoilers, um, please turn off the podcast now. But. One of the interesting things about that is that all of our heroes, with one exception, are not from the lot. That is true. That is true. Jimmy's not. Jimmy is not. Matt ben. is not. Ben is not. Um, even, only Susan. Right. Only Susan. And um, 
Mark's not. Uh, they don't really say, but he was new at the school, so presumably right. he he's not from the lot. Moved there recently, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it was it's interesting that it that all of these characters are the outsiders, and all of the um, you know all of the all of the townspeople, the inside, and even Susan to a degree. I mean, I'm not going to call her an outsider, but she is to a degree an outsider in spirit, right? Because she wants to get away, and she went away, and she went away. Um, and so what you what you have um, is, in a sense, you know, we I've mentioned before, Stephen King writes very well about towns and the town people and all of these things. But it's almost like he views them as so singular and unique that you need a mediator, right, to really encounter it and understand it in narrative form. So. You know, that notion in all fantasy books, for example, right, that you have a mediator, you have someone you can identify with who's experiencing these things for the first time, right? Think Bilbo Baggins, right, who's just a country squire who goes on this adventure with things that he's never encountered before, right? He's your mediator into that world that Tolkien created. And I think that King uses that same device by taking these outsiders and you experiencing the town through their eyes as well. And it's interesting because, of course, he writes so well about these local townspeople and, and all of that, but he uses that device to help us see the town um, as an outsider. So just just a, 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 a very, very um, deep digression, but your comment just made me think of that. Yeah, he uses avatars. Uh, yeah. Ben Ben being like the biggest outsider, really, right. despite yeah. his four years in town. The other thing, I, and I almost forgot this, and it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, there are four or five uh, chapters that run it. You know, they can be three to four pages, six to seven pages. He does these interstitial chapters about the town. And the first one, I believe, is a pretty much a geography lesson. And then um, a, a few chapters later, you get a bit of a history lesson. And then a few chapters later, you get a chapter about the secrets that are in the town, some known and, and unknown. And, and he plants these at fairly regular intervals. And together with the, the day in the life chapter of the town, it really paints a, 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 it, it paints a picture of the town for the reader that's very vivid. You feel like you know it. Um, you can picture it in your mind's eye. It's 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 really good stuff. I don't think we need to go through all of them. Although once we get to it, the the secrets part, there's a couple of good mm. there's a couple of good nuggets in the in the chapter regarding the town's secrets. But I really like those chapters. Uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. I I think that in in a sense, he's making the town as an aggregate uh, part of the story, right? And it's I'm not sure exactly how effective he is in making the town a part of the story, but I got to tell you, no matter what, it's incredibly effective at getting you invested in everything that's going on. Right. You get familiar with these things. You see things that you recognize and it, it just really sucks you in um, uh, incredibly well. It's 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 interesting. It's an idea that I think that the two thousand whatever movie version or television series version of it tried to pick up on this notion that the town was dying, right? And yes, and and 
I don't think they did it particularly well, but yeah, I, 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 you're absolutely right. It's it, the, these are really well done. They unpack. I mean, they help in the narrative because they help unpack certain things. But I think really they do just such an excellent job of getting you invested, right? And and really feeling something for these people in this town. Yeah, they're great. They, they, he really does a good job. Um, a little cliche, but he making the making the town a, a character in the book. <clears throat> um, we when we left off last time, we were at Danny Glick's funeral. What happens after the funeral? Uh, Mike Ryerson is going to hang around. He's waiting for Royal Royal Snow pops up again. He's waiting for Royal Snow. They're going to apparently using shovels are going to fill in the grave after everyone has left. And Ryerson waits for Royal Snow and he waits and he waits. And it's getting later in the day and later in the day. And this is this is Sunday. This is a Sunday. We already talked about what happened on Tuesday. Just so, just so people are clear, we've already talked about an event or two that happened after this. So we're kind of doubling back. But at a certain point in time, he's he, um, if I recall correctly, he starts to be driven a little nuts about the idea that Danny's Glick's eyes are open in the coffin, and eventually. Um, as he's as he's filling in the grave, cursing Royal Snow for not showing up, he um, decides he's going to close the eyes, and he drops down into the into the grave, uh, brushes off all the all the dirt that he's already put in the grave, and he opens up he opens up the um, the coffin, and, and I believe it ends there, doesn't it? You don't <clears throat> you don't actually see anything. At that point, no, just just that, um, just that he sees that Glick's eyes are open. I forgot that. Okay, so he actually sees the eyes are yeah. open. Then it fades to black for, um, yeah, for, for Mike Ryerson. And um, <laughs> <laughs> later on, <laughs> later on that same night, and I, I forgot about this. That same night, we get our first glimpse of barlow finally in my in my nook version of salem's lot we're up to page um 149 all right and now we finally get dud rogers at the dump it's sunday night it's past nine o'clock the dump is closed and he sees a man he's (laughs) i did dud you know we haven't mentioned dud before and there's no real reason to have mentioned him before. <laughs> he just like takes care of the dump and, and lucky him. He lives there too. He's, and he's got a hunchback. So, you know, yeah, he's just, you know, thrown in a hunchback character and, you know, he's got a chip on his shoulder about how he's treated in the town and, and what people say about him. And he's a fairly angry guy. Uh, but he sees, he sees a man in the uh, embers of the fire, he's, he occasionally starts fires to burn out the rats. Right. Which seems like a war of attrition at best to me, but hey, listen, I'm not Dud. <laughs> Dud's the expert on this kind of stuff. Right. I was going to say, nor are you a denizen of dumps. So, no, not, not anymore, <laughs> anyways. I, I've, I've turned the page on that. So it says, um, the man turned toward him. The face, 
that was discovered in the red glow of the dying fire was high cheekbone and thoughtful. The hair was white, streaked with oddly virile slashes of iron gray. The guy had it swept back from his high, waxy forehead like one of those. He doesn't say it. He says it in a different way, but one of those homosexual concert pianists, which apparently, I guess, Dud is familiar with concert pianists. Um, the eyes, <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a devotee of, of concert piano music. The eyes really likes Rachmaninoff. The eyes caught and held the red glow of the embers and made him look. It made them look bloodshot. And there we have our first. <laughs> the shark and Jaws has finally shown up. That right. is that is Barlow. What do you? Um, uh, anything you want to say about Barlow's Barlow's um, introduction okay. or his his conversation with with Dud Rogers? The only thing I want to add before you start is um, great line though about he you're one of the guys up in the Marson house. Dud asks him, "Are there any ghosts up there?" And, and uh, Barlow says, "Ghosts," and pauses, and then says, "No, no ghosts." <laughs> <laughs> just busting busting balls from the start yes yes no he's it's so um I, i'll just say just going back to um uh, for a moment the um um ryerson's digging up the the grave when i first read uh salem's lot that was the second part of the book that just you know scared the bejesus out of me um extremely well written in driving the i mean you know what's coming right i mean you you, you know what's there um it just uh scared me silly and the introduction of barlow interestingly enough and in, in my opinion not particularly scary at all no um and a very interesting um i think uh you know encounter with dud because he Right. He seduces Dud. Right. Not in the, you know, kind of um, modern, you know, sexual sense of it, but he seduces him with his with his reasoning and his empathy for Dud's position. Right. And um, gains his confidence um, and then goes and, and and, you know, very clearly um, bites him. But it's it's a really nice thing that we see with with Barlow is that he has this, I'll call it power of seduction that he demonstrates with with Dud that is um, applied to each individual individually. Right. Yeah. It's not the same thing for everybody. Right. It's a different way of getting at them. Um, And he becomes um, much more, uh, in a sense, monstrous that way, right? Because he's not just a monster that jumps around from around the corner and kills you, right? Somebody who can walk up to you, right? Without you, without your defenses coming up, right? Right. And he's manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. Bad, bad guy. No, yeah, he's a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> that he is. He, I don't uh, take kindly he, to Barlow myself. <laughs> he, he understands, he knows somehow, he knows people's weaknesses yeah. and he promises them things. Um, he promises Dud that Dud will have the girl. He's right. Dud's had, has had his eye on all this time. And, you know, that uh, with the vampire's power suggestion and almost hypnotism, 
Uh, it's not violent at all. Uh, nope. It's it's it, metaphorically, it's a rape, right? I can't I can't think of anything metaphorically more you know intimate and, and you know being assaulted and having your blood taken from you, but um, it's not it's not particularly violence. Um, so we get that chapter. That's our introduction to Barlow. We also get, you know, briefly touch on Father Callahan after the funeral. We get a chapter on Callahan. And what we learned there, I noticed, was uh, he's one of my favorite characters, by the way. I really like Father Callahan. Mm. I, I like he reminds me of, um, in broad strokes, not in detail, a lot of Catholic. I haven't met many Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I've, I've known some priests. Um, have you? No, I think some priests. I have known some priests. Um I was never an altar boy, no. But um, I think people who really, there's a certain type of person in this country who views Roman Catholicism as some kind of exotic thing. And the priests I have known have all been very kind of you know, pragmatic. They're not proselytizers. They'll offer counseling or advice to anybody. It's not like they check your Catholic card when you walk in. They know people have... They, they know people have doubts in even in, when they have, you know, faith, they have uh, moments or long stretches of doubt about it and things like that. And they accept it and they don't push or pry. They they're, they're willing to listen and talk and they're not the they acknowledge they humanity. Right? Yeah, they, they acknowledge your humanness and, and the fallibility of man. Yeah. And the ones I've known have gone to work as priests like other guys go to work with a pick and shovel. It's it's mm -hmm. it's the it's a uh, it's a job as well. It's an avocation as well as a vocation. But we get and we learn that Callahan uh, he's been in a lot for a while. He He's another like unlike like a couple of these characters. He is a self-acknowledged alcoholic. He, he drinks too much. He pretends to write. A, he pretends he's taking notes on uh, a book about the history of the Catholic Church in New England, and he ha he's having his own. I don't know if he's having a crisis of faith so much as he's very much a traditionalist and does not like. He doesn't seem to like the role the Catholic Church is playing in the modern era. The anti-war, you know, the priests who were in the anti-war march. It's not not that he was pro-war, but he always he seems to want a bigger fight, um, a clear-cut fight. And I'm sure he's not against all the you know the, the social causes and uh, trying to counsel people on you know domestic violence and hunger and all those social ills. He seems to be itching for a big fight, good against evil type of fight. And that has propelled him into something of oh, kind of like a I don't want to say he's depressed, but he seems to be floundering a little bit in his faith. I think that's a I think that's a good description. When I when I went when I reread this the, the last time, one of my notes on on Callahan's character is in a sense. Um, and I don't want to get too um you know, too deep. Too, I don't want to digress too much into navel gazing in terms of literary analysis. But 
there's a sense in which his um, crisis, and, and I agree with you, I don't think it is a crisis of faith, although there are hints of it. Um, um, you know, he does want this, he does want this big fight, but what he sees only, and there's this great, you know, great paragraph about how the great social and moral and spiritual battles of the ages boil down to these humdrum kind of incidents of, of bad behavior, essentially. Um, and he notes how dull it is, but he also notes that it's terrifying in its potential in implications in turning in terms of the meaning of, of, of life and, and perhaps even uh, of heaven. So he, he's, he's kind of struggling in a sense, a quagmire, right, of the world around him and, and what he's seeing without that big fight, right, without that you know, that big definite menace. And it, and it's, you know, my, my, uh, my little, little bit of literary analysis here would say it's a metaphor for Vietnam in a lot of ways, right? Instead of some big glorious, you know, battle and war, we were stuck in Vietnam for a very long time in this kind of low level warfare for a decade, essentially. Um, uh, without there really being at the end of the day, by the time you got into the late seventies, no matter how much of a war hawk you were, everybody knew it was time to get out and go just similar to what's been going on in Afghanistan in our generation. Right. Um, it's just this kind of, yeah, the, the, why are we there? Okay. We kind of understand maybe why there's a good reason to be there, but is it really worth it? And is this the, you know, are we really guarding against the kind of evil that we, you know, need to guard against? And I think he sees the world and the role of the church as kind of falling into that kind of malaise. And so he longs for that, um, uh, as, as he even writes it, capital letters, evil, right, to identify and fight against. Right. Uh, so, so that's Callahan gets his own. Callahan gets his own chapter. We already talked about uh, Ben that following Tuesday, Ben goes and speaks in, in um, Matt Burke's class. And that night they have dinner. We discussed that already. So I think um, now we, we get to the point where um, I think it's Thursday night where there's no play practice. Matt is Matt is the director for the school of play. There's no, play practice and he makes the mistake of going to Dell's where he sees Mike Ryerson and Ryerson looks like, well, he would have to look like 50% better to even look like shit. He looks terrible. (laughs) Burke, Burke, even Burke, even, uh, you know, suspects drugs, heavy drugs, heavy drugs, heavy drugs, not, not light drugs, heavy drugs. And he gets a story out of Ryerson about what what he recalls happening after the funeral. And it's just a succession of, I, you know, I, I woke up, um, the grave was filled in, I went home, I felt yeah. like crap. Don't and know over- quite how it happened, just it was done, don't know if Royal was there or yeah. not. Yeah, just, <laughs> just completely, almost like he blacked out. Almost like, like he blacked out, so... 
you know, that's so we got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So the following three days, he just talks about I was having trouble. I, you know, if I ate, I had trouble keeping it down. I would fall asleep and not wake up until the late afternoon. Then I would feel a little better. Then I would, you know, go to sleep. And he, um, I, doesn't he say something about some of his dreams, hearing like uh, children singing or something like that? Very, just very eerie dreams. And he finally drags himself, he drags himself out to Dell's that Thursday night and he also says just before we go on I mean he also notes that when when he was home sleeping he 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 just always got a little bit nervous and scared and so he would always make sure that his windows were closed and locked when he went to bed but they were always open when he got up yeah I don't know what that's about what the what could that be what could that be (laughs) perhaps we'll find out (laughs) So I think uh, before before we stop this little section, which we'll stop in a minute, uh, we don't have to go again into great de- detail about all that. But Matt, Matt makes the only thing worse than making the decision to go to Dell's that night was taking Mike Ryerson home with him so he could take him to uh, his doctor the very next day. That wasn't a good move. Well, you know, horror novels are made up of bad decisions. All right. Why don't we... That's true. Why don't we, uh, we'll stop there. So, Mr. Dale, have you been reading or watching anything of interest? I have, of course. I'm constantly reading, constantly watching television. It's uh, it's a miracle that uh, I'm actually retain my gainful employment. (laughs) Um, But I'm actually going to reach back a couple of years and talk about a book I read a, f- a few years ago. Um, got it uh, um, kind of almost on a whim, but um, it, it 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 was something that um, struck me as something I should I should definitely read. Now, as you know, um, before I descended into the bowels of the legal world. Um, uh, when I was in high school and, and in college, I was a musician. I was a classical musician. Went to went to Juilliard when I was in high school. Went to conservatory for the first couple of years out of high school. Um, and it's something that has, um, in as as an appreciator of music, it's something that stuck with me. You know, I, I listen to music constantly and and all kinds of music. Uh, and a few years ago, the um, classical music critic for the New York Times. Um, Anthony Tomasini wrote a book called The Indispensable Composers um, in which he um, walks through and describes um, a little bit biography, a little bit history, a little bit music, um, a set of composers that he believes um, if if you really want to listen to classical music, these people are really indispensable, right? They're, They're kind of the guideposts. And he goes through um, a history beginning in, I'll call it the early Baroque, which is really where um, our kind of modern sense of classical music began and, and takes us all the way through um, to, the, um, to the mid-20th century um, and pulls out um, you know, people who, for me, are kind of the, the guideposts, all people I've heard of and music I've listened to some more than others, of course. 
um, and gives this, uh, and gives this, uh, as I said, a little bit of history, a little bit of biography, and a little bit of uh, musical analysis um, of these composers. And he goes through, and I'll just list them real quick: Monteverdi, Bach, Handel, um, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann, um, Chopin, Verdi, Wagner, Brahms, Debussy, Puccini, Schoenberg, Stravinsky, and Bartok. Um, it's about uh, roughly 400 pages long, a little bit longer than that. My hardcover co copy is about that long. Um, and I have to say, when I read it, it was um, um, a page turner for me. I absolutely loved it. It was something that reminded me of things that I knew that I'd forgotten. It opened my eyes to things that I never knew about. And it really um, motivated me to go out and, and dig up you know, certain pieces of music and, and things by composers who I hadn't really listened to much um, and really just made me happy. I mean, it, 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 it was a great experience. I absolutely loved it. So if I, I think if you're at all interested in classical music and you don't know much and you kind of want to learn a little bit and get a little bit of, a, a, you know, some guideposts for you so you kind of understand a bit that, that whole world and how that music changed over the course of hundreds of years, um, I think it's an absolutely wonderful way to start that exploration. And even if you are familiar with the, you know, a lot of classical music, uh, there's something to learn about, um, and, and, you know, all these people um, that are just listed in this book. And, and I thought it was, I thought it was great. Um, and again, I, you know, if you're interested, I think it's a, I think it's a great book to read and um, one that I, I enjoyed immensely. Well, that sounds fantastic. I, I, I like books like that. I like books that give you a, a good overview of a particular field, um, a particular genre. And I remember um, when I was in seventh grade, uh, the first half of the year, we had a class that was devoted to music. And it was um, everything from, oh, you know, it probably... It probably it probably started hitting on a few of the Renaissance composers, which you know hardly anyone knows or listens to, like Jascan and anymore. Dufay and yeah, and there was um, I, I I'm I'm blanking on the name of the there was an Englishman as well. Bird, ah, I can't remember. Yeah. But then it quickly got into you know into the Baroque, classical, Romantic on on. All the way up through, um, I believe it was maybe Berg, Albin Berg. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second half, the second semester, you know, after Christmas, we came back and it was art and it was the same type of thing. Mm. And it was just a touch and it, it probably bored the living hell out of 75% of the students. I was fascinated. We weren't listening to whole symphonies. We were basically getting the greatest hits. Right. Um, and I, I really like that. So maybe I actually will, maybe I will check that out. That sounds, that sounds, uh, that sounds cool. It's great. I mean, the, the thing about, um, uh, the thing about the book and the wonderful thing about um, music is that, um, you know, as I, uh, as, you know, as I said, I was, you know, classically trained and, and at some, you know, very good institutions um, and I lost pretty quickly, you know, that kind of arrogance that you see sometimes with, you know, classical music, uh, you know, if it's not this, it's not really music. Um, 
and really, and, you know, learned to enjoy a lot of, uh, you know, just about everything that's out there. I mean, there are very little um, styles of music, call it, that I won't listen to. And the nice thing about this book is that even if you don't enjoy, right, one of these eras, right, and, and aren't particularly interested in listening to it for pleasure, um, it does give you that, you know, knowledge and information, right, for you to be able to understand at least what's going on um, and how things evolved and changed and, and developed. And um, perhaps, you know, appreciate something that you hadn't appreciated before. And so even if you, you know, even if it doesn't uh, open your eyes to, you know, all of the composers listed to me, like you, I think, uh, you know, to me, you know, life, the purpose of life is to go out and, and, and learn and experience, right? So uh, you can add to your knowledge and, and uh, understand something like that. I think it's a, I think it's a great thing. And it's, um, as you said, it's, it, it is fairly high level, right? You don't need to be a musician to read the book. You don't, you know, need to have a particular background. Um, he keeps it, you know, fairly straightforward and simple. And I think one of the reasons it's a joy to read is because it's very clear that he enjoys music so much, right? It just kind of comes out in the way that he writes. So great book, highly recommend it to you and to everybody else. I read a Stephen King short story. It's called One for the Road. And it probably took about, it's a short story. It's it's not a novella or anything like that. It's probably took about 20 minutes to read. And it starts off, it's a guy tell, telling a story. So it's a bit of a flashback. These uh, two old guys are in a bar and there's a big nor'easter going on outside. It's a tavern uh, up in up in Maine and it's the weather so bad out that no one's really come out except uh, one of the regulars and the owners there. They're both older men in their sixties or seventies and a person comes through the door in a panic. His car is broken down in a snow drift. He went for help. His wife and daughter are still in the car. It's running. So they're staying warm. He hopes and he's come for help, and the two older gentlemen are going to try to help him, but he is just out of his mind until they, uh, I don't think they literally, but maybe again, metaphorically slap him and calm him down. And, uh, you know, call, we could call the sheriff. No, the sheriff's busy. It's so bad out. He's, you know, taking care of some accidents. Where did you break down? And he's like, oh, I broke down about six, seven miles north of here. And the two older gentlemen just look at each other and, and they're, they're scared because he's broken down in Salem's lot. Mm. It's uh, a fire had destroyed the town a few years back. It's abandoned. Oh, dear. And no one goes there. No one wants to go there. And these two older guys decide that they're going to, you know, they're going to uh, weapon up and take this guy to look for his his wife and daughter in Salem's lot at night in the middle of a snowstorm. And, you know, that's all I'm going to say. It's worth a read. King doesn't overdo it with the Salem's lot, you know, Salem's lot stuff. 
But it's not just, you know, even though it's just a short story, it's not just a vampire story. It's it, there's a, a good little good little asides about I'm just too old for this crap. I can't do it. Um, <laughs> about old age, friendship, and just you know doing the right thing despite despite the known or perceived danger. And you know your your bones are riddled with arthritis. It's so much easier to stay in the tavern in front of the fire and just enjoy each other's company and not worry about this idiot from the city who decided to drive in Maine and a nor'easter. So that's a good read. Um, I think if you like Salem's lot, I think you'll appreciate this little, this uh, little short story. It's not a sequel or anything like that. It just, it's just another vampire. I think if I recall correctly, I first read it a long time ago in a collection of King short stories that came out. I had to be in the, in the eighties and it was in one of those, one of those short story collections. Was and it his pseudonym or was it under his name? Do you recall? Oh, it was under his name. It was, it was. under his okay. name. Yeah. And I think it was one of his better, better short stories, but that's about it. Um, we're done with our second episode of Salem's lot. Boy, we're really, we're, <laughs> we'll go on to our third episode of Salem's lot. We're really tearing this one apart, but it's been fun so far. So we'll, uh, we'll see you next episode. Sounds good. All right. All right, you want to um, you want to keep going? What do you want to do? Yeah, let's keep going. Okay, I will um, take five again, and um, or take four. So I, I got to get up and stretch. I'm I figured out how not to get that terrible uh, audio problem. So oh, cool. And I just listened when we took our first break. I listened to our first recording, and, and it's fine. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll 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 ring you back in the. Two or three minutes. Cool.